We're back, FOTB podcast. It's Wansak, it's Noah. Kicking off the weekend, we actually do have a Friday match, but we're not going to look into that at the moment. Let's start with Liverpool, because this was a team that, or one of the teams, I should say, that I thought was going to come back from their slump last season. And they host Bournemouth. Last time out, we know they obviously drew with Chelsea, so they're looking to come here and get their first win. But yo, I want to talk about Liverpool's transfer window, really. I mean, it's low-key embarrassing. How do you have such a stature like Liverpool? I mean, you've won way more than Chelsea has in the past few seasons. Yet, Chelsea have come in and swooped for two of Liverpool's transfer targets after both bids were accepted. Yet, the players decide Chelsea. Why? Why would these midfielders, why would these players in general not want to join Liverpool when it just seems like a match made in heaven? That's a, that's a question a lot of people have been asking. And frankly, I don't think anybody's got an answer to that other than the, the players themselves. Caicedo was hell-bent on going to Chelsea, or maybe I should say a London team because he, he wanted to go to Arsenal. Lavia, he seemingly would have started at Liverpool right away, and he's, he's done one to Liverpool and probably going to Chelsea. I have no idea what's going on at Liverpool right now because, I mean, I, I do have an idea. They're having a shocker of a transfer, transfer window because... Yes, they have the stature which has grown over the past few seasons with, uh, you know, Jurgen Klopp and them, them winning all the all them trophies. But there's been a lot of turmoil behind the scenes. If you look at uh, Michael Edwards, he's the guy who wa- wanted to sign Salah. Actually, uh, Klopp wanted uh, Julian Brandt. If you, uh, I mean, he plays for Dortmund. He's nowhere near the player Salah is, right? Um, and, and a few other players, but Michael Edwards, the, the key, key person behind Liverpool's success, uh, departed Liverpool. I think it was two seasons ago. He was linked with Chelsea. He was also linked with United too, but I think he's still unemployed. I mean, I say unemployed, but he's still on his vacation, I should say. And then his successor was Joel. Um, I, for, I forget his last name. It's not Joel Ward, I think. Uh, maybe I, well, we, we have a right back from, from Palace too, right? I don't want to say um, mixing him up with him. Well, he was under Michael Edwards, who got promoted, but then he felt that Klopp had too much power, and th- that position was not what he desired. And and I bring this up because it, it's seemingly more likely that it, the, the power that Jurgen Klopp has only grown, and. Maybe deservedly so. He's brought them a lot of success. You know, the, the biggest success uh, that, I mean, bigger than anybody could have ever imagined. But you, I think you kind of look at the situation in a similar way with, with Arsene Wenger's last few years at Arsenal. You know, he had all the power at Arsenal, right? And everybody was screaming for him to, or for the team to take some of that power away from him. But what does that mean? That means... I mean, that only means the manager's got to go, you know, and I, I don't think Liverpool is ready. I don't think they're ready to say that to Klopp yet, but we go back to like, to, let's say 2013, the infamous 40 million plus one pound for Suarez, you know, a lot of failures behind since what, 2015 was down to Arsene Wenger for Arsenal. Still don't think that 40 million plus one was as bad as everybody says, but we'll get into another discussion on that later. I think we already have discussed this before in the past still, but yo, I mean, I'm kind of in agreement with you there. And it's actually funny because Liverpool are having a clear piece of their puzzle missing, which is that central defensive midfielder, which was the exact same for Arsene Wenger in his time. He was also missing a central defensive midfielder. Which is why he went out and got Jaka to play that role. We all know how it turned out. We all know how his progression went. And now he's out. Liverpool, it's a glaring gap in the squad. And 
a low-key worry for Liverpool. Well, not really because I want them to lose, but <laughs> I worry for them. And it's sad because they've, you know, you talk, you spoke about how they had an absolutely awful transfer window. I don't think it went that bad. They actually made two great signings, in my opinion, in McAllister and Soboslai particularly. And where that's concerned, it's clear that Liverpool are trying to rebuild their midfield. It's just, you've now gone out and gotten, in my opinion, one of the most talented midfielders right now. That's, that's my opinion. You don't have somebody to balance him out. Football is all about the balance. And if you have one person who's going to be that creative attacking player, you need the balance with the rough tackling, ball-winning defensive midfielder. And they've missed out on both of their targets to create that balance. It's just worrying signs at the moment. And if they don't bring in anybody, you have to fear the worst. And a man like Sobosai, with his kind of talent, knowing the Premier League, he's going to get a lot more recognised. You worry about him potentially getting frustrated with that and then leaving. And I would have said, oh, Liverpool will get time to bring in somebody else. But at this rate, it's not about time. They just simply are not attracting the personnel. And it's sad. Yeah, well, it's not sad. Let's not put it that way. It's not sad. <laughs> sad for um, them. <laughs> for them, but... Like you said, the they were linked with. We, we go back. Let's go back to last season. They were linked with Chuameni, right? He was the 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 target to replace or come in, in in the midfield for for Liverpool. We all know how that went. He went to Liverpool or sorry, Real Madrid. They targeted Bellingham, but he he wanted to go to Real Madrid supposedly. Um, I, I know Bellingham's a different type of player than than Chouameni and and the defensive midfielder that they're looking for, but. It just screams of no no cohesion, no plan. Very similar to to last few years of Arsene Wenger, and they're bringing in a decent player in in Endo Wataru. Um, I've seen him play because he's obviously he's, he's Japanese. He plays against us uh, uh, quite a few times. He's a, he's a good player. He's better than Fabinho. I'll say that Fabinho at the moment. He's but they're the same age, and. It just reeks of one desperation, and again, no plan. So before I ask you the question, I do want to mention a fun fact. Jurgen Klopp has never won the league without a Japanese in his squad. That's Shinji Kagawa. That's true. Yeah. Mino Mino. Yeah, Mina Mino, and well. That's it. I'm not going to say Endo. <laughs> no, no. the real question is, does Endo come in right away and start? My, my, grand, my grandmother could walk in and sh- start right away in the number six position for Liverpool because they have nobody. They've got nobody. And I can see why they, they, they really wanted Caicedo because he, in theory, I think he's a better fit for Chelsea, but in theory, he would come in and... and he would have been perfect also for, for Liverpool. But yeah, Endo's is a, is a stopgap, uh, but he's, he's he's never missed a match for, for with an injury. I mean, he's had COVID, I think, and, and some concussion, but that's about it. So it's a decent signing if it came on June 17th, not August 20th, after you've missed out on all your targets. Right. That makes sense. Now, let's move on to the matchup between your two favorite teams. <laughs> Spuds take on Man United. How are you feeling? First, I want to ask you about the match itself. like, Because this is a big one, right? How are you feeling? Because you guys came out scraping against Wolves. Arguably very fortunate. It was very fortunate, yes. And Tottenham, of course, look like a lost figure without Kane, struggling to get a point against Brentford. Well, which is no easy feat. They, I think they had the best home record, if I'm not mistaken, last season. And they beat every, every team in the, in the, big, the traditional big six. So it's, um, it, it's, no, it's no easy feat that, to, to manage a point over there. But you're right. Tottenham... 
I'm not sure what what the best way to go about this season for them would be. They've they've brought in some players, which you know it, it kind of seems similar to when they sold Gareth Bale. You know they brought in uh, Lamela, um, Eriksen, so- Soldado. I think that was a striker brought in from Valencia. Robert only, Soldado, yes. Yeah, and only and only Eriksen really really succeeded, and, and it looks like. It, Madison could take you know his spot maybe to draw some um, to draw some parallel. Yeah, he's the one out of everybody that looked like he was actually trying. Yeah, yeah, and I mean they've got a good manager. Uh, I think the manager has won everywhere he's been, and but again I, I go back to what I said last week. I'm not sure how long this can last. With the way with how exposed they look at the back, but then I mean I could say the same thing about us too. There was it was so easy for for wolves to penetrate to our our last line of defense, and I I've had like five heart attacks that game because it was it was just so easy for them to go through, and it was very at least five times where it was three on four or four on two where Wolves players are outnumbering our defenders. So if last week's game is anything to go by, this match will end in a 4-4 goal fest. Or, I mean, we, we struggled to score, so maybe not, but there there will be chances, if anything, if last week's game is anything to go by. Yeah. And, you know, Anya comment about the manager. He's won everywhere he's gone. You said the exact same thing about Kante, so <laughs> I'm not even worried at all, bro. At this point, it's seeming like the Spursy is taking over whichever personnel comes to the club. Like, I don't know what it is, but I don't but know. Then, but then look at this. For uh, for the first, what, two, three years of Arteta's reign, you guys, you guys struggled. You were sitting in eighth, eighth, sixth, three seed. I mean, no no manager survives that at a, at a bigger club like United for for say for say. Um, but I mean, you could imagine that for Tottenham too, right? With this big change in in their play, you you could imagine that too, right? So it's like to to give some advice for the Tottenham fans who might possibly be going through that pain of of you know eighth, eighth, and sixth. I mean, it's just a different conversation. Like, of course, yes, we had that spell with the eighth, 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 but I'd more, I'd more compare that to Liverpool because it was clearly a spell, and both teams, Arsenal, Liverpool, have won in the past. Like, it's they're both clubs with history of at least having trophies. Tottenham, they haven't broken past that. If we're being real, they're like. Another, like when Aston Villa was coming in fourth and fifth, like years and years and years ago, they're like another one of them. Like, let's be real. They're having a spell near the top and that's it. But they haven't won anything to show for it. Even Leicester's won to show for it. So to me, they're not that level. They're not that stage. They're not, they shouldn't be considered. Like, I'm not even saying it's just as a rival fan. They shouldn't be considered in the talk of like big clubs like this. They may be. They may have had a decent spell. That's it. That's true. That's true. I mean, they were before uh, Harry Red, Harry Renner, we should say. They were regularly coming in, what mid table, right? So maybe maybe they are used to it. But I know they've gained a lot of new fans recently with their through their relative success. I say relative because they haven't won anything. But yeah, I think, I mean, I was surprised that Arteta survived that spell of eighth, eighth and sixth because I, I mean, I, I'll say I, I said he's got to go because I don't know how you can endure that as a, as an owner of, of Arsenal Football Club. But then they did, they stuck with him and it's, it could work out if you guys win the league this year or, or anything for that matter. But I, I want to shift that. To the other side, I, I want you to ask me how long I'm giving my manager time. Well, that's a damn good question because 
again, when we talk about the comparables like that, I see more of, I see more positivity in your manager in Ten Hag. Honestly, like, at least to me, it's, it seems like he's building a bit of values at the club, which goes a long way. It's not just about like, oh, you're this player name, so you're playing. There's values being built there. There's standards. There is style. There is intent in the decisions that he seems to be making. That's how it seems. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, yeah, Ten Hag is the man for Man United. All I'm saying is the signs look a lot more promising where that's concerned. There's positive signings. There's a style of play. It looks way more positive to me. But that's what you really should be the one saying to, to me. Like, what do you think? Well, it, it certainly is is more positive than than let's say a, a year ago. It, it couldn't. It can't go more negative than that. But I know a lot of a lot of fans like him, and a lot I know a lot of fans believe in him. And this may be reactionary from the Wolves match, but I, I, I'm I'm really not not so sure because you say good stuff or. You can see a style of player or what we're trying to do on the pitch. I, I don't. And it's fair to say he's sacrificed some of his values to to win now rather than, you know, try to implement his style and, and come eighth or tenth like Tottenham did last year. But, I mean, at a certain point, we, we've got to see you be able to dominate other teams on a, on a consistent basis. I gave him an excuse last season. First, first year coming in, we're 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 playing every you know every midweek until from from December to May to mid May. So I gave him the benefit of the doubt that you know it, it's hard for a manager to come in and instill his style right away with the players that he might not necessarily pick in his best possible eleven if he were given a, a blank check, but. That's what all top managers have to go through. You know, Pep Guardiola's, it, he didn't, I mean, okay, he, first year he struggled, but the second year his, his team really took off, right? Arteta took more time, but we can see what he's doing on the, on the or his team is doing on the pitch. We've got to see that with him too. I, I know he values winning now too, so he, he sacrifices some of that. But any any okay not any manager but a lot of managers can win if you come in and spending 400 million pounds so we've got to see uh something that we can we can really we can really see that they're trying to do because you know we we hobbled to the finishing line last season and we cannot have that again this year i I don't really view that as progress even if we come second playing you know in in a hobbled fashion i don't really view that as, as a progress so, to me, it sounds like style of football is what you value the most. You want to see the output and performance on the field. What kind of style of play are you looking for from, from Ten Hag? What, what can he do to win over your approval? I don't care if he plays 65-70% possession football or a counter-attacking style of football. As long as we're able to dominate the teams on a consistent basis and we see that on the field, I'll, I'll be satisfied because I, I think if that's instilled in your team, results come. Because he, he, he mentioned this, this preseason that he wants his team to be the best transition team in the world. And I like that. I, I'm, I was never, as good as it is on the eyes, I was never into... The, the Barcelona of 2010 football where you pass the ball around for 500 minutes and, you know, you try to... I mean, it's great. It's easy on the eye, but what, what are we known for? We're known for the counter-attacking. I mean, I remember all the goals that we scored at Arsenal between 2007, 2009, 2010, or 2009 before Ronaldo left. I remember us tormenting Arsenal, not in the Premier League, but also in the Champions League too. That's how... That's how we've always played. That's what we're known for. And that's fine. That's fine. As long as we've got a good pressing structure to be able to win the ball back high up the field, be able to transition the ball quickly because we have the player suited for that. Bruno, um, he's the best finder of the past 
a direct transition path. So I want to I want to see that the best wanna... direct direct path that you have. No, in the league, it's it's statistic, it's statistically proven. He's had the the most passes that resulted in a direct transition uh, in the league last year, and I'm I'm sure that's the case for since he he's come in the league because he's that type of player. He's always gonna try to find a quick pass up the field because he's not the best. His style isn't best suited on on the ball. I mean, it sounds funny, but he's not the type of player like a De Bruyne who would who can not only pass the ball but also dribble up the field with it. Right? He's he's more of a find the quick passes, um, try to get players in behind. So we have the players for that, and I don't mind playing that way if you can you can instill the fundamentals to really be able to facilitate that. So let, let's see some of that. I, I, it's good to win, but we I need to see some of that. Right. And it, it also helps, especially when, you know, as you say, he's he's instilling a style of football that you guys are traditionally known for. So that's why I say it's kind of similar to you and Arteta in that, in that way. Um, so that's that to me. If, you know, if I were you, I'd be very excited about that. To be honest. But your local rivals are hosting the battle of the riches, Man City versus Newcastle. Two sides that we look at and we say, yo. These two on paper are looking very dangerous before the season starts. Newcastle did open that up with a convincing statement and they topped the league, actually, for being technical here. And City, as well, with a convincing victory. So, the question I have for you now, first, to start off is, how crucial is this De Bruyne injury? How will this impact City? It's huge. We saw it against Arsenal too. He came on and changed the game. I say changed the game, but then they ended up drawing the match and ended up losing it in penalties. But he's still the the main piece of that team. So I I would say him pushing through the injury was worth it because they ended up winning the treble. So hindsight, it was worth it. But he's he's thirty two, approaching on thirty three now. I didn't realize how old he was. I thought he was still like 20, 26. But he came into the league at 24. He's been here for eight years. He's, he's going to be 33. I mean, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say his body might be given up on him. Because it's not he's not the one. I, I should say he's always had a few injuries, a few niggles here and there. And it's becoming a more common occurrence. And this is a big one. Months with hamstring. I mean, hamstrings can be bad, but months? I don't think I've ever seen somebody miss that much time for a hamstring injury. Yeah, no, and I'm, I'm very interested to see how City react to this because, you know, we always talk about City's depth. It doesn't matter if they get injuries. They're stocked up, stocked up, stocked up. But I still feel like no matter how much depth you have, when you play in a certain way for so long and you play in a certain system and there's a piece of that system that is so crucial to that system, you tend to become very used to that and you tend to become reliant on it to a degree because that's what you've become accustomed to and used to is having that support. So although there's so much talent in the squad around the whole field, You just have to ask that question, are City going to find themselves missing De Bruyne more than we'd expect? Yeah, I mean, De Bruyne is more than just a piece. That's, I know the team works like a well-oiled machine, but De Bruyne is, is like a, you know, let's say... The, the the handle to a car like without a handle you're not you're not driving i mean you, you can drive but you're not gonna go very far because you can only go straight you know so it's, it's gonna be a big miss and he's he's probably the hardest player to replace in in today's world 
that's the thing because he feels so unique. Yeah, yeah. I mean, where else can you find a player who's that creative, who's that physical? You know, you, you, like it's not like David Silva where he was always, you know, he was nifty but not the best uh, physically. Um, so that's they're gonna need to start looking soon because I, I think De Bruyne could be could be done pretty soon in terms of his body, not his not his abilities. But you made the point just now. Who who in world football can replace De Bruyne? He's the most difficult person right now to replace. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't, I don't. I mean, they've been linked with Paqueta, but he's like. It ain't gonna be the same. Yeah, it's no one's gonna be the same. Yeah, it's not gonna be the same. But their first test without De Bruyne is against Newcastle. As we've mentioned, they look like they're proving me wrong because I thought that this was going to be the season that they don't show that kind of expectation that everybody was talking about. But boy, this youth Alexander Isaac, boy, he is he's a monster, bro. Class, pure class. Well, but then do you realistically expect Newcastle to be able to keep up this pace? throughout the whole season because you mentioned the, the biggest thing is them being in Europe. There's no, no way. You're right. You're right. The, the the momentum and carrying it throughout the whole course of the season, of course, that's going to be the main challenge at the end of the day that we described already in the last episode. But then we had that assumption as well when they went up against Villa and that it would at least be a difficult match and it wasn't difficult at all. It was actually breezy. So that's where the question lies for me is I still agree with the statements we were talking about before regarding the Champions League running and these things. But the display they put on against Villa and the display Isaac put on against Villa particularly has my eyebrows raised. I I, I, I looked back, I thought back about the game and... The game, I mean, the game was tight until 2-1. Until uh, Tyrone Mings' spirit got into Ezri Konza and made a mistake and gave Isaac the goal. Cool finish. I mean, not many players can do that. But I, I think 5-1 is a bit flattering on, on, on Newcastle. Uh, and very much not... Or What's the opposite of flattering? Because I want to use that word for Aston Villa. They could have pulled one back easily. 3-2, uh, except for Mati Cash's inability to, to play football. Mm-hmm. So... Is that what you're yeah, also, doing, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I mean, and also, teams need to start respecting Liverpool, uh, not Liverpool, Newcastle. And I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen Isaac last season, towards the end of last season, getting behind from oppositions playing such a high line. That you you would you wouldn't normally see against against the big six side at their home, so teams need to start respecting Newcastle and 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 playing against to to nullify their strength. But I mean, I, okay, I can hear you on the flattering result, but can you argue with two goals from the big man at striker? I mean, let's be real. Like if this was a Marcus Rashford. You'd be head over heels. If this was Eddie and Ketia, I'd be head over heels. If this was hey, you can't, no, you know? Don't compare Isaac to Nketiah. Whoever, even if it's Martinelli, I'd be boosting that up saying, yo, brace from Martinelli. That's big. But Isaac has done it. He's gotten his chances. Like you say, even though it was an easy chance, he tucks it away. That's the difference, right? Because I don't, I don't respect when... If a striker misses that easy chance... We're hounding him saying, you should be scoring that. It should be an easy chance. But when he scores, we're just, it's just nothing. We've got to give the praise when they do the things that they're supposed to be doing as well. And, and I do. I, 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 give him, I give him credit for, for that finish. Such a, such a delicate finish, that, that dink over, over Emmy Martinez. Not so easy in the moment. The composure and the technique. Yeah, he's a... Or that was a good, great finish. Good finish. Um, the first goal was a set piece, well worked set piece. Um, I didn't know, but but Tonali took 
most of the set pieces for for AC Milan last season, uh, and we saw that with his delivery for that for that second goal for Newcastle. But I, I want to move on to Chelsea. Last point before Chelsea. I move on, though, Tonali impressed me. No one can talk about Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Chelsea have spent, what, 200? If, if they sign Lavia and if Lavia starts, they've spent close to 300 million pounds on their midfield. On a 21-year-old, I think Enzo's 22, 22-year-old, and a 19-year-old. Cut them some slack. They did make back some money on the Mountain Kai deals. I'm not going to say Kai Havertz, actually, because that's technically a loss for them, but at least for a month. Well, t- yeah, technically a moss, l- loss, but, uh, I mean, the the, tra- the transfer fee when you buy gets amortized into different years, but then the profit from selling counts as that year, which is kind of doesn't make sense to me, but that's just how it is anyway in terms of the financial world. But, yeah, it, that's what makes them able to go and spend this much money, not to mention the fact that Roman Abramovich cleared all the debt before he sold the club. So it's almost like Chelsea were starting fresh. Yeah, and as you said, whole fresh new midfield. How do you think that midfield gels? I mean, that's looking like a very, very interesting partnership of Enzo Fernandez and Caicedo. Yeah, well, if Nkunku comes back, he would be the, the second striker probably, and we would see a double pivot of Enzo and, and Caicedo. On paper, that, that's that's perfect. That's I don't see how any team catches that. I think that eclipses anybody's midfield in the Premier League. So you're saying who like starts at that camp, essentially? Or Well, I mean, while Nkunku's out, I think we could see Enzo playing a bit further forward because he, he's mentioned it himself that he wants to play further forward this season. But yeah, if, I mean, if Nkunku comes back, he, he's probably going straight into that position. But even just as a double pivot, they can do everything. Both of them are very good under pressure. I think... Uh, number number the best player uh, when it, when it comes to passing the ball out under pressure of course number one is Rodri number two guess who it is this is based off of last season so number two any guesses it's one of one of the two Chelsea players <laughs> wait hold on say it one more time. The player with the best pass percentage under pressure is Rodri. Of course, you would expect that. Number two is... Hold on. Is that current Chelsea player? Yeah. Passes under pressure. And it's one of the midfielders. Yeah. I guess Enzo then at that point. Yeah, it's Enzo. Number three? Caicedo. Yeah. The, The... the, the player with the most recoveries is your own Declan Rice. Yeah. Second, party. Caicedo. Not party? No, it's Caicedo. Whoa. The player with with the, the most tackles is Joan Polina at one. I think he's had about 140 tackles, but he also collects a lot of yellow cards. You know, he I think he's collected like 16 yellow cards last season. Second on that list. Kaiseido with a hundred. Wow. So I mean, this guy. Yeah, I mean, this guy. The comparisons have been made to Kante, and I, I can see it. He's a better Kante to me. A better, maybe defensively, Kante has still proven more. I mean, he's single-handedly won Leicester the league, but he Kaiseido has what Kante did not have. I'm not gonna say Kaiseido has the as the most creative vision or anything like that, but he's a good passer of the ball even under pressure, and stats prove that. So on paper, you know, just looking at the, the, the areas they operate and the stats, this is a perfect combination. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm very jealous, <laughs> except for the fact that they spent so much money, but who cares at the end of the day? It's all, uh, who cares really? It's not your money. It's not my money. No, you're right. But then you always take into consideration opportunity cost and then, the potential FFP coming into play, which Chelsea have already experienced the 
the consequences of that. We just, you know, we just wonder, could the money have been spent better? Could it have been spent, you know, differently? Did it have to be all on one player? Could they have built a team? So you always look on those things. But to your original OG point, I think I have to agree with you. That midfield transformation is looking absolutely splendid for us. And for us? Huh? You mean for, for Chelsea, not for us? No, no, no splendid for us. Oh, okay. I thought, you, I, thought you said, I thought you said splendid for us. I'm like, oh, what? <laughs> no, hell no. But, but as in, bro, like, I just, I, I don't know what it is, but maybe, maybe I'm not giving enough credit to the past as well. But, bro, today, when we see midfields change, you see the entire team change. Look at Liverpool. Their midfield yeah. left, their side change. Even Arsenal, midfield change, whole different squad. You saw the difference when Jack and Party got in, and then when Odegaard started knocking, it was a whole difference. And that's just what worries me as a as an opposition fan about Chelsea. That midfield transformation could be that kid like that 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 transition from terrible to great, like how we always talk about with Chelsea. The roller coaster transformation. So it is a worrying sign. I won't even lie. They still need goals, but I, I don't think their signings would have changed your mind on them finishing in the top five. If anything, it would have bolstered it, I would assume. Right. And that's the thing. We spoke about Nkunku being out. That's probably where their source of goals is going to come from when he returns. He had a good preseason where the goals were concerned, but. Talking about your the, the prediction you said, bro, I remember when I made that prediction and everybody in the comments were like, yo, you don't watch football, like you started watching this or whatever, like, bro, Chelsea have been shit, and then they were laughing at me, Newcastle should be in there. Okay, maybe Newcastle, yeah, but bro, I think Chelsea are turning a leaf, honestly, and we're seeing it again, they're up and down. The only thing that worries me is I just hope that they're not coming for the title, bro. It plays in the back of my mind whenever I, I'm very superstitious, right? And whenever I hear people talk like Chelsea fans, especially when they talk like, yo, Chelsea's back, Chelsea, we're coming for the league. They always somehow actually manage to do well that year, even when you're not expecting it. And I've already heard some fans be talking like that. So my superstitiousness is getting to me, but my mind needs to calm down and say, yo, 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 fifth is where they're coming, fifth. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I mean, for, for the people who are, who's questioning your your pick for, for Chelsea to come in top five, I mean, maybe it, it will change because that was under Roman Abramovich, a, a different owner. But, I mean, have you not watched Chelsea? That's Chelsea. They could come 12th one season, and the next season they could go on to win the league, which they, they did under Conte. So I'm not sure why they're surprised that you've picked Chelsea. I mean... On paper, their team still doesn't look the best, but that's because a lot of them are young, not because they're bad. Uh, right, right. Like, this, new, this new guy from, from, I think he was on Burnley. I forget his name. Is a left-footed... Um, Ian Matson, yeah. Yeah, bro. He he impressed me. Like I liked his link-up play. He had good little one-twos. Nicholas Jackson looks like a very promising, powerful striker. The only thing with, with a Jackson, like he said, the, youth, the rawness, the youthness, is that clinical finishing is still yet to be... I shouldn't say yet to be tested, but we still need to see more of that. But you're absolutely right. Chelsea's squad just comes down to a matter of youth. Look at this guy, De Sassi, Scores first game in. He was a 50 million <laughs> signing, right? Yeah. Yeah. And... Uh, well, at least when it comes to the defense, they have an, a great anchor in the middle in Thiago Silva. So, yeah, bro. We, we can never count Chelsea out. You, you, you should, you should learn. You should have learned from history and, and and experience. You should, you can never count Chelsea out. We enjoyed last season making fun of Chelsea. I'm not sure how many more that we get. I mean, maybe we we will because this seems to be happening every once in a while for Chelsea, but. This usually doesn't last two or three years for Chelsea. So 
laugh at them while you can because they're I, I think like you said I think I think they're they're good for the season. Yeah, they're and moving forward, of course. Yeah, yeah. At least posing the threat. That's what it looks like. At least. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I'd rather, I'd, I'd much rather Chelsea win it than than City or or Arsenal or anybody. <laughs> Quickly, before we even touch on to Arsenal, I want to make a quick question to you about Villa. I know I personally had them as quite promising and they clearly slumped in their first match. They're hosting Everton, where Ashley Young... Young? The boy Ashley Young is coming back to Villa Park to test the waters. But I really don't want to talk about Ashley Young. I really want to ask you, did Villa show what they're going to produce for the rest of their season against Newcastle or do they bounce back? I was disappointed with a few players like Leon Bailey um, and Ollie Watkins. Ollie Watkins needs to be, I mean, he scored his career high in goals last season. He was, he looked a step off from, I mean, even, even Leon Bailey too, but they both looked a step off of uh, Musa Diaby, who I was told doesn't use his right foot. But then he scored with his right foot with a very great volley finish. And he tried to go on the on the outside often and cross with his right foot. That game alone, Musa Diaby has used his right foot more than Anthony has in his whole life. So I think I need, I need to stop making judgments before I actually watch them play. Because, yeah, Diaby uh, impressed me. And I could see why a lot of the big clubs were in for him too. But Villa... I'm I'm excited to I'm not excited, but I'm intrigued to see how they replace Tyrone Mings because we make fun of Tyrone Mings, but he's he's a crucial piece of that team. Not he's not not only is he the well he's not the captain, but you know he's I, I assume he still plays a major part in in the dressing room, even though his his captaincy was taken off of him. But defensively, he's the best defender for for Aston Villa within the penalty box. So we'll see. Uh, that's a big miss. They're bringing in Zaniolo. They're looking to bring in Marcos Acuna for to the left back position. I'm not sure why they have Luca Dini and they have um, Alex Moreno, who's, who's the fastest player on Aston Villa at, in that position. So may, maybe they're trying to use Acuna in a different position. But yeah, they're you can tell their ambitions are are big this year. Yeah, as they should be. They have a promising squad. They have. They have a good manager. They should. They should. They really should have that kind of mentality to go and and knock it right. I mean, the the Newcastle match is going to be a big blow mentally, psychologically. The truth of the matter, though, is when you look at the big picture, if they lost five one, what's the difference between losing five one and one nil, right? Of course, goal difference. But how often does goal difference truly make the difference in the at the end of the season? It's very, very rare that we're having a tiebreak at the end of the season, right? So it that's a challenge, that's the next challenge for Emery. Can he get the Villa squad mentally back on their feet? But a man who has proven to be able to do that, Emery's former side, Arsenal, is the man who replaced him. Mikel Ateta. Boy. I know it was a, a, a nervy match still against a Ferris side that we probably on paper should have won comfortably, but we take the wins as they come, you know? Yeah, like you said, who cares if you if you win by one goal? Three points is still three points. Facts, facts, and facts. I'd rather win one nil five games in a row than win five nil once and lose the rest. So yeah. I'll take the wins as they come. Can we see the same outcome against Crystal Palace? Uh, I think this is a rematch of the opening game of the season last year, right? Uh, where Arsenal won the game 2-0 uh, off the back of, was it Martinelli's goal from a, from a corner? Yep. And Saka, I believe, who killed the game in the second half. I think on paper... You would expect Arsenal to be able to dispatch a Palace team that's going to be missing Olise. Um, Eze is probably unsettled. 
with with the transfer talk to to Ch- uh, sorry to Tottenham, um, the new new boy that they've brought in, um, who has not settled in yet. Um, it was a comfortable victory for for Palace at Sheffield United last weekend, but yeah, they're. I I don't think they're gonna go down, but I'm not. I think another mediocre season. You know, we 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 usually never talk about Palace in any meaningful fashion. They're never in the European competitions, but they're also never in the relegation com- or conversations. So early on in the season, uh, I think Arsenal would be expected to put in a better performance than last than last weekend. Um, but a, a big miss is Jurian Timber, who, like you said, has pretty much settled in right away at, at the left-back position. I mean, everywhere, really, across the back. The full-backs, he, he didn't really play as, play as a centre-back. but Although he can, but yes. Well, he can, yes, but I don't think he was brought in for the for that, right? So, yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, I mean, as you say, right, you're, you're hoping, I don't want to say a better performance than last time because I felt like we... We were dominant in that game, especially while Timbo was on, although the scoreline wouldn't suggest. We're looking for a more convincing performance, and that always comes on with the result, right? That's how you really convince people. And the player I'm looking out for, probably going to be an obvious choice, but is Saka. I feel like he's had enough seasons now to where he has the experience in the league. He's had enough game time, enough matches. He's seen it all, done it all. He's been in the title running. I'm looking at Saka to consistently, as he has been doing, be the man. Get the goals. Get the assists every single time when we need it, when we don't need it. Get them. Like, rack them up. I want to see him racking up numbers. And he had an incredible goal last time out. I'm expecting to see more goals, more results from him against Palace, even if it's not goal assist. So I'm seeing direct goal con- direct goal involvements, direct goal contributions from Saka in this one. Do you draw any comparisons to Arian Robin from, from watching Saka play? Well of course. I mean that's what that's what every, that's the talk right now. Everyone's saying, hey, Robin, it's a new Robin, XYZ. But but do we, you do you see that personally? I do see it, but I don't see it as much as everyone else does. I don't, I'm not trying to call any hits on anyone or anything like that. This is not necessary. This is going to come across like an insult, but it really isn't. I see Saka, I don't see Saka as one dimensional as Robin is. However, that one dimension, or however you want to call it, like that one dimension side I play from Robin is ridiculously effective because of how good he is at that play, like at that move, the cut inside and shoot. I think Saka has that in his game. Probably not as well as Robin does, but I think Saka has a bit more to his game in terms of variation. I think Robin has that move down, that cut inside and shoot. That's his move, bro. And he has that down to a T and has accomplished a lot more. Currently, like if we're going to say Robin is a legend in the game, right? I'm not going to sit here and say Saka is better than Robin, right? No, I'm not saying that. Can Saka get to that stage? Sure, he can. He's got a lot to prove though because that's big shoes to fill. But I've never seen Robin do as as much right-footed attempts as Saka is trying now. I know everybody says use his right foot more. You've made that comment. Wenger made that comment. So, yes, sure, he might be young and trying to do it more now, but I see Saka as a little bit more unpredictable than, than Robin. I mean, I, yeah, I know I've said for him to uh, explore his right side a bit more, but from, uh, I mean, he, he scored a goal just like that against us back in January, right? Um, the thing with his shot from, from that position, it seems to just fizz in. Unlike unlike a Robin's you know curler where it's it looks like it's going out of bounds but then it just curls right into the top corner, Saka's just just fizzes into the into the top top corner. So I think if he can actually develop that and get to the level that that Robin ultimately got to, 
I mean, you don't even need to go to the right. If you can be that effective and be that dangerous on, you know, on your, your stronger side, you don't need to go down the, down the right to, to force your, your, um, your, your weak side. So either way, that's, that's an improvement. That's a development to his game. And I think we're seeing more of that. I mean, we'll, we'll see more of that, I think, from, from Saka. Yeah. And I, I will give him credit because there's not just one way of developing. You know, of course, it's good to be ambidextrous, but if you can really shoehorn your strength and make it, you know, unstoppable, who's to say, you know, try to use your weak side? Right. And I, I like how you use that word development. Because people just think like they watch this player once and the player is stuck like that. Like these players have the ability to get better, you know, and they have the ability to develop into different types of players. And guess what? That goes both ways too. Because you, you can only you can be young and okay and you get better, but you can also be young and good and become shit later on. So it can go both ways, right? And you made a great point. If you're already that strong on your left foot, then why not continue with that, right? If they know, like, it's almost like Robin will say to the defender, yo, try and stop me on my left, right? If you make me go on my right foot. But guess what? They can't. And that's what he's so good at. Now, what what I'm saying about Saka is I'm saying, yo, he's better than Robin because he can do these variations. I'm just making the comment on the differences between the two, simply. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I think he still needs. I think there's still some ways for him for him to develop his his strong side. It's not. It's it's good. It's better. It's probably one of the best in the league. But still, a bit of room for improvement, development. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's he's developed into a, into a great player. He's probably behind Salah. He, I mean, I look at Salah as a more of a striker, even. But behind Salah, you're probably picking him as as your best. Not just well, sorry, Holland is left footed, so I should I wouldn't say left footed, but a player, an attacker who plays on the right hand side, he's probably coming in just behind Salah at this point. So. I don't think I would have said that maybe maybe even a year ago. So that's good for him. Um, I mean, I'm not happy for him. He's not my player, but good for him. And, and I'm sure Arteta is going to work with him and develop him as best as he can. And he, he, so far, it looks like he's in good hands. So Yeah, for sure. I agree with that. Looking forward to seeing more. That's all we have time for today. Guys, thanks for tuning in as always. We hope you enjoyed your time with us. Remember to subscribe, to leave comments, and share with your friends. Follow us on social media at FOTBPod. Don't forget to leave a review, rating, and most importantly, don't forget to turn on those notifications. Join us again next time as we discuss the highly anticipated upcoming Premier League action. Thanks again as always. See you then. Thank you.